ready over there in Nebraska? Yes. What about here in Kentucky? Ready for an adventure. All right, guys. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Savage Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. I'm Jonathan. And by by God's holy trousers, we have joined <laughs> together to talk about a fun movie. Uh, this was this was a great this was a great bit of prep as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, we're going to be covering the man who would be king. This is the fifth episode in our eighth season. We're on the road to the east, and so here we're talking about a, an adaptation of a Rudyard Kipling story. But this is a a Houston movie from the from the seventies, and it's High Adventure Man. Yeah, this is one that I we were talking before the recording. I'm surprised that I never saw this. Like this is in my wheelhouse. I don't know how I missed it. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. This is not on my radar. Like given the love that I have for, you know, Indiana Jones and all things of that of that ilk. Like I this just wasn't ever something that was on my radar. Like even as a as an older as an older sort of genre fan, it, it's kind of surprising to me that it's not something that I'd picked up. John, had you heard of this movie or, or seen it before? Nope, never, neither. Uh-uh. But and, it's our jam. Yeah, it, it fits, you know, in with uh, Indiana Jones, like Luke said, or Romancing the Stone, like adventure with a, a hint of comedy. But there's a dark edge to this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because there's Masons and Illuminati and stuff. Yeah, secret societies and secret handshakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's what we're that's that's going to be our main bit of content for the episode uh, that we're dealing with here. But before we get into that, what are we drinking? What do you got there, John? I am drinking a beer that I got when I was back in the motherland. It is from the People's Brewing Company of Lafayette, Indiana. It's called Boiler Black, an nice. American black ale. And it's an officially licensed NCAA product, so it can have the Purdue train on the outside of the can. Nice. It's pretty tasty. That's cool. My, my wife's a big stout drinker, so this is the one she picked. Give us some tasting notes. Um, You know, dark and beery. Malty? Not malty so much. It's, it's like a Guinnessy kind okay. of feel. Okay. A little yeah. chocolate? A little chocolate, a little coffee, yeah. a little watery on the front end. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Nice. We've got a black can. <laughs> it is. It is none more black. We have a growler of uh, 1792 Kentucky Common Beer, which is uh, from the brewery that's in that's in Richmond, Kentucky, Dreaming Creek Brewery. It's it's our one of the one of the local local places that we have, and it's good stuff. So the Kentucky Common is a it's a fairly dark beer. But it's not like a brown ale. It's basically lighter in body than like an ale, or like a like a brown ale or a porter. It's more akin to like a cream ale. It just happens to be dark and it has a little bit of toasty flavor to it. But mm-hmm. it's not like a a super a super toasty kind of thing. And then what did you bring, Josh? I brought some Country Boy Halfway Home American Pale Ale. So right. we've got some some smoothness and some hoppiness uh, to get us through <laughs> this adventure. Yeah. Did you? Are they both in growlers? Nope, mine's in cans. I have a, a thing that I might send to you guys that you can use. I just spoke at the Nebraska Hops Conference nice. recently, and I got a hops cooler purse thing. It's like supposed to keep 
uh, or a growler, a growler purse thing. You put your growler in it and it keeps it colder longer. Nice. That's but awesome. You can also dude. wear it like a satchel. Dude. Put a crazy straw in it and drink beer all day. While you're trying to make your way through the Kyber Pass. Exactly. That'd be cool, man. Right now, mine is nestled in a, a Carhartt <laughs> toboggan because that's, that's, that's my current sort of storage in the back of my truck. See, like, I could help see. you out here, man. It's next to a box that says New Year's Party Kit. And yep. I think it, yeah, it fits in really <laughs> well. <laughs> I really want to see this party kit. I hope that there's just like some streamers and one of those horns. Mm-hmm. Yep. We threw down New Year's at Luke's. Yeah? Yeah. You fought? Nope. Just oh. partied. <laughs> so hard. So hard. Because <laughs> we're cool. What uh, What else? Should we get into the one thing? Do we have any content that we want to... Want to talk about outside of that? Uh, I don't, John. No. Okay. Let's cue the one thing. One thing. It's just one thing. Good stuff. John, you want to lead us off, dude? Sure thing, Brosif. Uh, I will go with a book that I haven't quite finished yet. It's called The Historian. It's a vampire Dracula adjacent book. It is quite lengthy, girthy. Have you read it before, Josh? Uh, so this this book is like one of my. Uh, it's like a white whale novel. Okay, like tell I'm, me more about I'm that. A, I'm after it. Um, I bought it as a, a Christmas present for my grandma, like years ago, and she loved it, and she passed it through the family and. And everybody like loaned it out, but I never got to read it. And uh, I have always been a big fan of Dracula and have heard really good things about this book. And it's like, you know, one of those books that I'll see in a bookstore and I'm like, "Uh, I could get that, but I really want to get this. And it's like, you know, it's it's tail fins just dive beneath the waves and I let it go. (laughs) But, But someday, someday. (laughs) <laughs> from hell's well, heart I'll i was in a it. similar boat so i got it from the library oh. so i don't have any excuse not to buy it <laughs> yeah. uh it's pretty interesting i i don't know a whole lot about the dracula fiction i guess but i do know just a little bit about vlad tepes I don't, i'm sure i'm not saying that right but just hearing more about him and this blend of adventure and detective kind of work as well as sort of a historical thriller kind of thing it's all it hits a lot of notes that I enjoy. So it's by Elizabeth Kostova. If you're interested, check it out. Cool. But it is like 650 pages. It, it's so a big, yeah, it's a big one. Set a weekend or two aside. <laughs> what about you, Josh? Well, um, I have also been reading a Dracula themed book that what? yeah that our buddy Evil Ed sent uh, like last fall. He sent me a copy of uh, I think his name is pronounced. Dacre Stoker, and he is a uh, relative of Bram Stoker, and he's been sort of carrying forward the literary torch of the uh, the Dracula story in in terms of writing other material that's officially s- sanctioned by the Stoker um, family. And uh, Ed and uh, Stoker are buds; like they like Ed knows him, and of course Ed would know him. Right. Like evil Ed knows freaking everybody. And uh, so anyway, he sent me a copy uh, of the the new novel from uh, Dacre Stoker uh, called Dracul, 
which explores the early years like of um, a somewhat fictional version of Bram Stoker's life. And it throws some vampires into the mix. And uh, yeah, there's some cool vampiric lore in here. I'm only about a hundred or so pages into it. It's it's a little a little thinner than the uh, Custova story, but um, still a, a pretty substantial read. And uh, by what I've seen on Goodreads, like people are digging it, and so far I like it a lot too. Cool. Yeah, Dracul. We're, we're both riding the vampire wave. That's right. <laughs> Luke, tell, tell us all about how you're riding the vampire wave. So I guess I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know how the story is going to turn out. But I guess my one thing is last night I watched the first episode of the new season of True Detective. And I like it a lot. Uh, it's a very quiet sort of start. And I'm excited to see where it goes. It's 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 pretty cool. It's, it's going to have some neat themes, I think. And... Uh, yeah, it's just going to be a different animal, I think, than the first season or the second season. I can't think of the actor's name. He was Remy. Herschel Ali. Yeah. He, wasn't he Remy in uh, um, House of Cards? And he's the bad guy in Luke Cage. No, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. He's a, the, he's the a cool season. guy. He yeah. does a lot of neat things. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Brad Dorf is his, his, uh, his, uh, you know, partner. partner? Mm-hmm. And they're they're Arkansas like state police. There's your vampire connection. Yeah, there's there's your blade. <laughs> <laughs> He's a naughty vampire god. <laughs> so so yeah, so that's that's what's going on uh with, with me. I mean, that's been the main thing that I've was jazzed to really get into and I wasn't able to watch both episodes because two episodes dropped at once, but mm. I had to just, just do the one last night and I'll do the next one tomorrow night. I fully intended to watch it, but here's something that happened this weekend. HBO has removed their uh, app for streaming HBO Go from Xbox 360s. And so if you're a, a 360 owner, you can no longer stream HBO using your 360, um, which I think is a, a big old piece of crap. <laughs> so Jerks. I was not able to watch True Detective, and I'm still way behind. Um and that sucks. You should write them a sternly worded letter. I'm going to tweet at them from our our internet platform. <laughs> we are mighty. That's right. We shall rally our <laughs> dozens of followers. Dozens and dozens. We're a force to be reckoned with. Anyway, what do we do with those one things, Luke? We put them all together. We smush them up and spin them around and... Put them on a quick, uh, a quick tumble dry, and then they come together to be one thing. Yeah, I like tumble drying. I think tumble drying is a great way to to do it. Spring fresh. Yeah, like if you got clothes that are a little wrinkly, mm-hmm. I'm into it. Yeah, turn it on the no heat. So welcome to Laundry Cast, the fluff mode. The fluff mode. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, new band name. <laughs> so we've been watching this show on Netflix. There was almost a one thing of mine that has this lady named Marie Kondo who wants you to throw, oh, yeah. give all your things away. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, we watched the entire season. And here like she says you're only supposed minutes. to have 30 books on hand at any given time. Yeah, she's wrong about that. But she's right about <laughs> she's right about other things, but she's wrong about that. But she also talks about how 
should, the things in your house should be things that make you happy. So if books yeah. are things that make you happy, I'm sure she would acquiesce to that. I think so. Yeah. I hear that she talks a lot about animism. Like, yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, uh, kind of, um, like she seems like a, a tidying up shaman who okay. is sort of channeling the spirits of your, your home and your belongings and getting you in tune with them. Because you're supposed to say thank you before you get rid of it or something, right? Yeah. It either, if you didn't, if, it, if it's a shirt you didn't like, then you thank it for teaching you that you don't like shirts like that. And if it's a shirt that you've worn a lot and you really loved, but you just don't need it anymore and you want to get rid of it, then you thank it for that. Cool. Yeah. And it, I guess it's a way to sort of um, shortcut the emotion that people tend to you know, tie up in, in things. Right. And address that. I, anyway, <laughs> that's, that's the KonMari method. Uh, it's not a one thing and people are fast forwarding past this. So, uh, no, they're not. Listen, we could do so many <laughs> podcasts about so many things. Yeah. All right. Get us back on track, Luke. You're driving this thing. All yeah. right. Let's get into a uh, movie time, movie talk. It's movie, movie cast tonight. We're going to be talking about the man who would be King, which is, uh, a movie from what seventy four? Is that about right? Uh, it's seventy five. Seventy five. Yep. Yeah. So this is a, a John Huston adventure movie. Uh, it's an antecedent, uh, or no, it's a precedent, right? It would be like the pre. It precedes. It's a precedent of advan- adventure movies such as any number of Indiana Jones joints, I yep. think would be the closest thing that I see an association to there. I know you mentioned like romancing the stone, mm-hmm. uh, lots of, lots of those types of things. It's not to say that there weren't adventure movies before this because, uh, Mr. Houston himself made a variety of those, uh, previous to this, but man, this seems to be, this was a bit, this is a big show. It didn't necessarily cost a whole lot of money. It seems like from what we were talking about on the front end, of of before we started to hit record tonight at least in today's terms but it's a spectacle i would argue there's a lot going on here i agree and i think even though it lacks you know the the really big set pieces that other adventure films might boast this one in particular has a a certain measure of charm given to it from the two co-stars sean connery and michael caine and it is a fun and amusing adventure romp until suddenly it cuts you with a dark edge. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, the weight and the gravity of the the movie. I mean, it can be felt throughout, but you kind of see the nasty turn that things are going to take at the end, just based on how the movie sort of begins, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe. Rather than dwelling too much on the plot point, I've, I've been liking or uh, jumping around and just talking about overall impressions and things that we like about the content that we're discussing here on the show. But maybe we can just sort of remark about the storytelling device and the way that the narrative unfolds. Well, there's a man sitting in an office, kind of alone, twirling his mustache and writing. And what appears to be a beggar comes in and kind of accosts him. And it unfolds that he knows this beggar from several years prior. He witnessed a pact being made between the beggar and his best friend that they would leave India, which is becoming far too civilized and giving way from the wilds to 
civilization of the British Empire, and that they're going to leave and go through the Khyber Pass to Kafiristan. Kafiristan. I think Kafiristan is how they said Kaf- it. Yeah, Kafiristan. And they're going to take over, and they're going to make out like bandits and steal all the gold. And it sort of happens, and then it sort of gets undone. <laughs> it's it's a classic case of be careful what you wish for, isn't it? Yeah. And now he's back to tell the story of his buddy. So we're being we're being told this story by Peachy, who is played by Michael Caine, and he is basically relating the tale of his now deceased friend Danny Dravet, who was the king, who was the man who would be king. Yeah. Um and so one thing that I really liked about this film, as I alluded to earlier, is the chemistry between Michael Caine and Sean Connery. Um, their interactions, their quips, their, the way that they seem to be able to sort of see far and know how things are going to turn out and, and hope that things will turn out okay and never seem to really lose faith in what they're doing, even when things really turn dire, like that relationship and that chemistry, uh, is, is something that I think is, um, a, uh, a boon of this movie. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed, and I think it was, it, it happens about a third of the way in, but at the, at the point in time that this happens, I was hooked. Uh, whenever the duo are on the adventuring path and they're in the mountains and they hit the crevasse and they can't cross and they're re- resigned to die. <laughs> and at one point, Michael Caine makes the remark that he'll just go ahead and put a bullet in both of their heads. Like he says something along those lines. He says it in a much cooler, you know, British accent. Mm-hmm. But that remark and that level of resignation and just like getting on with their 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 discussion, it just really, that's the type of British military stiff upper lip like perspective that I just enjoy so much. Right. Like those are the guys that you want fighting on your side because they're just going to face down whatever's coming their way. I still got the impression that they didn't really believe themselves that they were going to die in that moment because Sean Connery is just like, let's, let's just enjoy the fire while we have it. Right. Like it's, it's very, let's live in this moment now. And if we die, we die. Uh, yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I did see it as, it is like the most Howardian moment in the movie that they, they I live, I laugh, mm-hmm. I slay. Yeah. And they make remarks about, would you have done anything different? I agree that that's a very powerful moment because they're both talking about like, oh, I never met the queen and mm-hmm. I, I don't really have any good deeds to my name. But I liked it because they kind of looked at each other and they were like, but I had you and I have our friendship and our adventure and look at this thing that we're seeing right now. Look at this view that we get to behold. And even if it's the last thing that we see, that's kind of enough. It's it's a very interesting perspective to hear from two guys who seemingly are very greedy and just want to game the, the whole board against the world and come out on top but that they have this moment of peace in the mountain pass. 
yeah i think i think the the adventure and the accumulation of like the experience is what they're truly after like the the pursuit of riches is the excuse like the the adventure is really what they're hungry for and what they're what they're searching for and even though they're they're slimy thieves they are honorable right they they have a a code that they sort of exist by and they sort of um trust in one another and put their own lives in one another's hands uh throughout this film and uh they believe in brotherhood yeah and i think that's exemplified by the contract that they sign right yep. that uh in our uh christopher Plummer slash rudyard kipling characters <laughs> office that uh they won't uh have any contact with women that they won't have any alcohol until they are both uh, kings. Is this example or is this part of their life as being Freemasons, which is sort of a plot point in this whole thing? I don't think so. I think it, it was more of the gentleman's agreement that they were taking the intrepid sort of steps together and they weren't, about to be deterred by vices is like, like it wasn't necessarily it's clear from their remarks before and through like before that. And also like over the course of their, their temptations that they like both women and drink. It's not something that they swore off years ago as, as Masons. And it's something that they're oh. doing. I, I was referring more to this like brotherhood aspect of their personality, like the fact that they're in it together. And once you're on their team, you're on their team and they're not going to leave anybody behind. Maybe, but I, I was remarking to Luke earlier that I never really bought that they were Freemasons in the first place. Uh, I mm. looked at it as something that they noticed about the Kipling character that he was a Mason and that was there in with him. But I could be totally mistaken. I may have missed uh, an important plot point at some point. But I, I didn't really buy that they were Masons. I thought they were just kind of that's that's the fortuitous um, uh, event that happens that gives them access to um, Kipling, who they're trying to con. And then later, Kipling gives them the symbol, the Mason symbol, uh, gives it to Sean Connery. Who then, you know, without that Mason symbol, the uh, the latter half of the movie would not have taken place the way it did, right? Right. So I, I just I wasn't ever sure if they were actually Masons. It seemed like a fortuitous event that uh, was more of a coincidence than anything else. Yeah, I did. I did think that they were Masons the way through, just with the way that. Michael Caine makes some remarks like multiple times you hear the phrase we met on the level we're parting on the square like they return to that terminology a couple times mm -hmm. and it seems like it's spoken in earnest and so the way that I interpreted it was while they may not be the most straight laced and, and honest of, of individuals and they're kind of ne'er-do-wells they are masons anyway and i i don't know like there's there's that level of occult knowledge and mysticism that gets wrapped up within the freemason lore and that's really you know this movie relies upon that quite quite a bit but also 
myself growing up in the the late 80s and the early 90s and uh in the middle of nowhere arkansas everybody was a mason like my grandpa <laughs> was a mason my uncles were masons it was kind of like the club that that the dudes did and like my grandma was part of the the what the northern star the eastern the star eastern the star, eastern yeah. star like component like the, the you know the the complement to that so at least in small town arkansas the masons were alive and well and it was more of a it wasn't a reflection on your your moral fiber as much as it was a club uh i'm seeing in the wikipedia summary that uh, carnahan found a masonic tag on the chain that he stole from kipling um and realizing he robbed a fellow freemason he had to return it but to me it i don't know i i guess i guess that's what happened i interpreted that sequence of events differently that he saw the tag and saw a way to manipulate a man yeah exactly yeah i mean it is ambiguous like i don't i don't think we can say clearly one way or the other on the basis of the what's what's delivered as far as the content yeah uh i just assumed you know this guy's a con man he's Con, con man gonna con he's, he's can't be helped con. yeah um but regardless it is fortunate that uh Dravit has that symbol um because it saves his, his life right john the symbol yes yeah. uh ultimately when they get to their destination they run through there's a, I, I thought there was a few interesting tidbits where we meet a character up in the mountains who is formerly of the British army, but also can speak the native languages. He calls himself Billy fish and Billy fish is going to help them out. And he kind of becomes their right hand man. And once we get through all that, they end up in a holy city after sort of conquering the area. And I guess they're, they're going to stab him. Right. And they rip open exactly. his shirt and we see yeah. Sean Connery's manly chest hair. Well, first they're going to shoot him with an arrow, right? <laughs> and and that gets disrupted. And then the priest is going to stab him and he tears open the jacket. And luckily, Connery uh, Dravit is wearing the, uh, the Mason symbol. And there it sits. And it's the same holy symbol that Alexander left behind, Secunder left behind in this city. And so they recognize him as Secunder II. Alexander's son who was promised to them over 2000 years ago. Yeah. Well, and I guess to just to point it out, like prior to that, all of the local peoples that had amassed under their flag had already bought, bought in and drank the Kool-Aid that he was Sikander. And it was the, the holy men themselves that were skeptical, right? Like they were going to say, Oh, you, you dodged, you dodged the bullet. <laughs> so <laughs> the to bullet speak. being is the arrow, right? Yeah. And so we're gonna see if you can do it again. Because if you're if you're a god, then this arrow's gonna gonna not 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 hurt you the second time around. Like that little test seemed I keep coming back to Indiana Jones, but that seems like something that Spielberg would would have would have picked out. I mean those are those little tricks and trials and even Alexander, like Alexandretta, those are myths that get pulled into the, the Indiana Jones mythos. Mm. I don't know. It's powerful, man. Like Alexander and the, the wealth accrual and 
the information and that benevolent uh, God King kind of trope. It's just, it's powerful. Like there's a lot of heavy symbols and tropes that are at play in this story that I think just provide a level of gravity to the movie. Like it's a great action movie just because, but all of those things are the things that I really liked and just, just turned me on to, to the movie all the more as I was watching it. So in addition to the, the Mason symbol, uh, you, you drew a pretty cool sketch that you posted on social media, presumably, and it contains a, a skull, yeah, a crown, an arrow. What what symbol really struck you the most out of the the various uh, icons within this film? Well, I mean, it's unavoidable. You can't get away from from Sean Connery's arrow, which becomes his 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 wand or his holy scepter that he contain like he wields as a as a testament to his godhood. That's just a powerful, a powerful symbol. Like what, what an arrow is and the strength and the militant sort of power to that. Also, I don't think it's a, con- I, I don't, I, I think there's a lot of intentionality with these symbols and I'm not going to ascribe that to either Houston or Kipling because I don't know enough about Kipling and I don't know about Houston to do that, but it's, it seems like, you know, a sword can be a lot of symbols. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, an arrow can be a lot of symbols, but we keep, keep returning to like the straight and level and the, the symbol of the arrow seems to be important here. Uh, so that was something that just really struck me over the course of the, of the movie, but it hit me too. And we can, we're spoiling things, right? We're just talking around yeah, this movie. By the end of it, Sean Connery, he dies, right? And so the, the revelation is that Peachy uh, was crucified and, <laughs> and, and, and was resurrected, but he's a shell of a man. The next day, they cut him down and they allow him to go free. But Sean Connery himself, who was the king, uh, met the horrible demise of being out on this rope bridge that's cut and he plummets to his death. Somehow, Peachy finds the body and has the head in, in, a, in a manner that calls back to their original pilgrimage into Kafiristan. It seems like Peachy kept his hand on, on, uh, on Danny's head, like carried his head out of Kafiristan with the with the crown still on top of it. So the, the, the final zinger of the movie is him plopping down his head. And we've seen the, the symbol of a head and specifically a dead head apart from the body throughout mm-hmm. the movie multiple times. I think that's the, what's the, what's the, the symbol of like uh, a man's mortality. Like you oftentimes see like a skull within a, within a still life, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, googling it here just to to make sure i get this mortis term uh a memento mori okay it's it's a powerful sort of symbol like like over the longer periods of gentlemanhood and and art you can oftentimes in 
a study or or in a piece of art see some symbol of death and specifically mm. the skull is something that pops up but the the latin terminology there is remember that you will die yeah. right it's it's almost similar to the way that you would see some sort of mortal remark etched upon a sundial to just hammer home that hey man time is passing and this is this is what you got you better make the most of the day every time you look at that that skull that's on your bookshelf it's a reminder that this could be your last day right we keep seeing the dead heads of men pop up in this movie and in the final the final remark i mean we can we can i think take home that danny lived a rich life for all of his faults he died a rich man like he died a king with a crown on his head uh i think i think that is like a really powerful symbol for the the attitude and kind of the swagger that that these rogues present i think it's intentional too i think that that's part of it yeah i think i think you're right i think there's something to the fact that we keep seeing the the local people playing uh, polo with the uh, a decapitated head of their fallen enemies. Right. Side note that made me think of uh, Rambo three over and over and over again. Every time, <laughs> every time I see like Afghani people playing that game, I just think about Rambo three because as a as a young teenager, that was my that was my touchstone. <laughs> um, I think there's something also to be said about the arrow becoming gilded as um, Danny is elevated from uh, mortality to, to Godhood. Right. It's sort of a symbol of his uh, uh, apotheosis. Mm-hmm. Is that the, the word that I'm looking for? I think so. His, his transubstantiation. And Tell me more about that. Uh, well, I mean, uh, at first the arrow, which, you know, uh, was fired at him and hit his, uh, his leather strap or something that was underneath his shirt His bandolier bandolier. It, it is just a regular old wooden arrow that, you know, someone fashioned and, and was indistinguishable from any other arrow. But after visiting the, the sacred city of, um, Oh, Sikandergul, uh, and and Danny becomes elevated to uh, uh, son of Sikander, and and is recognized as a god. The arrow itself is is also gilded, and I expected to see that by the end the arrow would be would be broken, and mm-hmm. or something would happen such that you see the material components of it again, uh, and and that that was a thread that I didn't that that. Um, sort of was left hanging i think i enjoyed that his royal symbol is something that flies high and falls hard oh yeah yeah good pull yeah the arrow really captivated me but now that you mentioned the memento mori and the symbol the skull symbols luke that's that's pretty powerful you're right i think the bridge that peachy constructs is another is another symbol of of what like a distinction between those two guys, like Danny's Danny's downfall is his hubris, right? Yeah. He starts believing the, the story that they've con- concocted, right? Yeah. Drinking some Kool-Aid. Yeah. He's, he's blinded to 
what their mission was in the first place and how they truly are like <laughs> what their what their nature is right yeah he's he he falls victim to his own imagination there and i think i don't know i th- i think it's just it's great that the the bridge maybe this is maybe this gets into the white savior trope like there is a bridge that's constructed that that spans another crevasse another 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 deep canyon between uh Sikander Ghoul and presumably the rest of Kafiristan which mm-hmm. makes it such a hard place to get to to connect and and to quote unquote civilize these people whether or not they need civilizing we don't know i think i think you know we're we're fluffing up this movie quite a bit i think the movie you know casts a positive eye towards the the imperialistic nature of our of our british rogues you know they see themselves as as civilizing and teaching these these natives the better betters right and like i'm thinking about at the end it's suggested that babies are being sacrificed in a temple before uh danny marries his 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 selected bride that's that's what what i took from it mm-hmm. and peachy makes the remark that these people are animals and we don't need to be here. We're, 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 we're just putting on a ruse, man. We got to get out of here because we're in over our head. This is, this is barbarism still. I think, I think that bridge and the concepts of civilization and barbarism, there's, there's things to be disentangled there. And the, the cutting of that bridge is the rejection of the British imperialistic, uh, white saviors that are coming into town. I, yeah, I can totally buy that. That's, um, I noticed that there was a scene where, uh, early on as Danny and peachy are, are building their forces, they're training them to be like British soldiers. Right. Right. Which was one of our criticisms of the Monday story, right? Like just the, uh, the way that, uh, British imperialism was kind of fluffed up, by by Monday in that story, and that's present here as well. But I I think ultimately the statement that's made, and again, like you said, not sure if this is a Kipling thing or a uh, a Houston thing. But the 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 ultimate downfall of Danny as a god of these people is his desire to. I mean, in addition to him buying into his own legend that he's made up, is his desire to um, select a bride and provide an heir and, and a, a royal line. And ultimately, this example of, of colonialism is brought down by a woman, which I, I thought was pretty fascinating. Like, his bride-to-be uh, is terrified that if he is a god, then when he kisses her, she'll just, you know, erupt into flame and ash. And she bites him uh, during their wedding ceremony. And that draws blood. And that is what everyone, like the priesthood, who already suspected that this guy was a con, um, that was the evidence they needed to ultimately bring him down and bring back the status quo. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting scene too, because 
I thought that those priests were looking on a little bit expectantly. Yeah. Like, it seemed as if she was under a trance in a way, and there was some writhing going on on the ground oh, before she okay. ascended the stairs. And I couldn't tell if she was under their thrall or under the what was the the god's name the the big eyed god that was upset and oh, turned the guts of birds into green goo and stuff. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember his name either. But was there it, seemed to was be. Was it Imra? Yeah. What's that? Was it Imra? Something like that. Yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that she, Roxana, seemed compelled to bring down the imposter. And they seemed a, a little too prepared for the situation. So I, I thought maybe there was something to that. I always thought it was interesting that there's this guy that he left India because of civilization. But now he seems to be all about civilization. <laughs> He's like, yeah, let's bring some civilization here and, and change everything up the way we ran away from it in India. I think that's the head trip, though. I think he's he's bought into his own god status, and right. he's look like those are excuses. I think there's a lot of excuses here, and I think I think this is a well, it is like objectively a, a hyper masculine movie. Uh, and it is, I think, commenting both on positive and negative aspects of those masculine uh, persuasions. Like the, 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 what do I want to say? Like when Roxanne or Roxana bites Danny, he calls her a slut and like pushes her down. Uh, he is he's <laughs> for for us like remarking on how how you know roguish and irascible these guys are like he's still uh blinded it the only way that he's pulled out of it is by like the the final like dutiful bro love of, of michael kane pulling him off but like i think there's something to be remark there too like that like that's why sean connery died like that's why <laughs> his his, their, his stature died was because he, he flew clo too close to the sun and he desired too much. He was desiring to sort of go against the will of the people and, and ultimately the needs of the people. Because we see him, we see him in a very measured way being a king. And, <laughs> and then we also see, hey, buddy, we've been, we've been friends forever, but you better go ahead and bow to me. It's, it's only, <laughs> it's only for appearances, but go ahead and do it. Right. Yeah. Like that's, you're, you're seeing the, the best and the worst, I think of Danny at that point in time, like within that scene. And I think the, those are the really powerful elements of the movie that, that make it more than just a straight, straight ahead, like simpler adventure story like the breakdown of their their relationship mm -hmm. and the the breakdown of danny's like mental capacities right like yeah he, he is he's losing it yeah it's uh i saw maybe i can't remember i was i was reading about houston as a director and as a an adapter and a term that was used to describe him was was lean and maybe also economical with with his storytelling mm -hmm. and i guess even the way that he did 
movies. The he was constantly storyboarding and like sketching and stuff, but he didn't shoot tons of shots. He didn't do lots and lots of takes. He oftentimes really strived to get it done in a relatively high level of effort but short like he he only took a couple shots and he was able to work it because he had a vision like I don't know if auteur is the right term to use here. Like his authorial vision comes through on the camera, I think. But I think also he just, his method was not let's shoot it a handful of different ways and capture the most emotionally resonant. It's like, Hey, let's think about this, how we can sort of supercharge the emotion and the intention on the screen and shoot it once or twice and then be done with it. So I think that comes across like the, the economy and the leanness of the film, it, it moves quickly and you mm. get Danny falling apart in his, in his, his mental faculties. And you get these scenes where you get the, the, the both the positive and the negative aspects of Danny as a God King, like mm. in these scenes, because it was a two hour movie, man. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't, <laughs> yeah. there was thought that was going into how they were putting things together. Yeah. It, and for a two hour movie, it does move at a clip. It does. I mean, they, they, so much happens. Cause I, so I watched this movie over two nights in sequence and basically once they had the battle and it was revealed that, that Danny was quote unquote, the second coming of, of, of Alexander, I was like, this seems like a good place to stop it. And, <laughs> and, and I was able to return to the movie pretty easily the next night. It was very, it was very pulptastic. I was able to like yeah. read the first, the first act and come back and catch the second act. This movie, I don't know what you guys thought, but at that point, this movie took a turn that I did not see coming. And, and I didn't read anything about this film or the story before watching it. And I, I expected that one of the two in our our duo would become more successful and that it would pit them against one another. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I thought this was going to play out. And it it didn't. And it became this this mythic uh, uh, man rising to this this uh, conception of godhood and he, you know, it, it just doesn't work and it falls apart. And and I did not see this movie going the way that it did. Did you guys have preconceived notions about the film before you press play? No, not before before play. And really, once you're introduced to Roxanne, I thought, as you say, there was going to be the pitting of the two the two dudes against one another. I mm. thought it was going to go the easier route and have her have it as a love triangle with Michael mm. Caine ultimately pushed out. Uh, and I'm happy the the way that, like while Roxanne has a place in the movie, the the fact that it's not it's not love or desire of a woman that that frames up the the demise of these these guys. I think that's an absolute testament to 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 a better movie that we're seeing here. That it's it's the desire of of, of more, 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 you know, not limited to a woman or wealth. It's the power thing. Hmm. My preconceived notion would that it would end up being sort of about trying to transcend your station in life and the inability to do that, that 
one of them would really fall in love with this prospect of becoming a ruler. And I really thought we were getting that turn when he started talking about, and I'll go see Queen Victoria and I won't <laughs> kneel. We'll shake hands as equals. And I thought, Oh, like this is this guy really thinking that, that he's done it. He's, he's an English. He's not even English. He's Scottish in real life. So I assume he's Scottish in the film. Uh, he's a subject. And right. yeah. is is now transcending subjecthood into kinghood and godhood and transcending all these boundaries that are put in place by people, but that something would go wrong and he would tumble back to earth or that he'd be the king with no clothes and be embarrassed in front of the Raj of India or something that they would go back and try and show him off and it would it all fall apart. But I enjoyed what it ended up actually being more than what I had anticipated. So I have one more question that I wanted to ask you guys, which doesn't mean that the discussion has to end. It's just, this is the end of, <laughs> of my content that I have to contribute. What do you make of the final scene where Michael Caine's character, Peachy brings back the head of Danny and leaves it, for Kipling. Why does he do that? What what is what is the purpose behind that? Is is it just madness or is it something something else? Like why include this? So, he can't he can't bear it anymore, right? I mean, he's broken in body and mind and he somebody has to know the story. This is the only guy he knows that he can tell it to and so he leaves it to him. And then he literally leaves it to him that he leaves behind the evidence of his tale and probably just like descends further into drunkenness and beggarhood on the road and never speaks of it again. I, that's what I took away from it. Yeah. So I see it, I guess on, as you were asking that question, I was thinking about it in my head. So, so the first response I have is what was the purpose of, of that action on the part of like peachy in the story? I think what what John gets at there that it was he had to he had to air it out and reveal this spectacular romance that the two of those guys experienced like in the high adventure sense. I'll point out like I think that that's a that story within a story nested approach is something that the pulps and a lot of other storytelling uh, traditions rely upon there, yeah, oh right? Yeah, totally. Like the fact that the the guy that's the the author or at the newspaper uh, office, Kipling, that is we know it's Rudyard Kipling. That's that's the, to clue you in that the story you're getting is from him, right? Which is mm-hmm. uh, Lovecraftian in its nature, and you know that is a way that that pulp stories were told. That sort of nested approach. So I think that's the in the story reason for, for, for the head being dropped there on Kipling's desk. I think the, the moral of the story, I think the intention with, uh, what were presented here by both Kipling and Houston is it's a morality statement that while this hyper driven desire for, adventure and the, the hyper masculine uh, attributes that we can talk about with both peachy and Danny are things that are 
not admirable, but at least uh, you dream about. Like, they're the kind of things that you might sort of daydream about. They're relatable. Yeah, they're relatable. They're the things that you might sort of think that you want to do. In actuality, it's a statement that, no, you don't. Like, the, the, the steps that were taken led to the the demise of Danny. It's a testament to like this 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 man who was a rogue and became a king all in the span of a season or two, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it is this look what this man became, but also it's a statement of look what it cost this man. Mm-hmm. Returning again to that 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 death symbol. I mean the the actual death of the character, but it's a, a statement of at what cost this crown upon my upon the head but at what cost yeah yeah they mention several times throughout the film like i want to see a golden crown upon your head and and that's that's what i'm that's what i'm in for yeah like that's that's what i want what about you what did you think dude i i wasn't sure i i guess i guess i thought you know Kipling was a journalist right like that his his character was a writer right and so i guess to sort of take it a step further, maybe he wanted not just to share this with Kipling, who was, you know, a touchstone for us in the narrative, but also for Kipling to share the moral of it with a wider audience, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that from a narrative standpoint, it's in the story to show the devastating effects of this ambition that is realized but realized in a way that neither of the characters would ever have asked for or anticipated you don't want to be peachy no and you certainly don't want to be danny either well i think about you know peachy is is the more admirable of the two fellows i think in a lot of ways he's the friend that was persistently there and he propped up Danny. Yeah, he did. (laughs) He did so much and it was, it was thankless towards the end as we see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love the, the remarks whenever they're having their initial really strong argument that he, he remarks that, you know, who was holding the, the, the tail of the horse and who was leading the, leading the horse, you know, that was me, dude. Like yeah, right, <laughs> you right. were the one that was snow blind. Uh, the, those statements are really powerful, but man, to think about what that character would go through at that point in time, if like, he could have got away, his intention was to leave. And Sean Connery said, Hey, I'm getting married in the morning. Stick around for me, bro. Like, I want you to walk me down the aisle. Yeah. And, and he said, okay, I'll do it for you. And that's the reason, like, otherwise we like, uh, Peachy would have got away with the entire like half of the, the the treasures of Alexander the Great and would have been just ruling the world like Lord, Lord Peachy Lord <laughs> he Peachy had it all uh, I as you said that I can't help but notice the symmetry between the scene where they're in the mountains and their their brotherhood is at a a strong level. And but they think they're going to die, and then a bridge is built for them, and then at the end, when their brotherhood is sundered, and a bridge becomes the thing that actually ultimately divides them. 
That's a great point, man. Yeah, I think that's spot on. There's there's a reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Like, I liked this movie a whole lot more than I thought I would. Uh, because it is more than just an adventure story. Like, there's layers of, of narrative theme here. It's cool. It was it was super cool, man. I'm really glad that we picked this to read. I'm or or rather to watch. I really I, I want to go. I want to find it. I want to read it. Uh, I need to get me some more some more Kipling in my in my pocket. Yep. Yeah. Me too. Any any final thoughts from Nebraska? I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm glad that you guys liked it, and I'm glad it was a good part of our. It can be our film for the season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was a great pick. Uh, even if it was a pick made blind, like, uh, we were all Danny snow blind in the, uh, <laughs> the mountains. Uh, and luckily we, we, we made it across the crevasse and, uh, had a successful movie discussion. Yeah. That, that, that film was awesome. Yeah. No crevasse can stop us. That's right. So I'm pulling up the, the list of, of where we're going. From here is next the soul of a Turk. That's right. The soul of a Turk by Abdullah Ahmed. Yeah. And it's an archive accessible story. Mm -hmm. Looks like here. Yeah. I think you have to check it out. I think you have to uh, actually go and and create an account and it's DRM'd. Oh, okay. I, I think. I might be logged in through our, through our Chromecast account Maybe. right now because uh, right now I've pulled it up and it okay. is it's a full book yeah it's it's like chapter two or three within the the book yeah and it says here it's pages 97 to 114 so it's a relatively short like 17 or 20 page 17 or 20 page story so this is this is gonna be a getting get out it's a new it's a new author for us and I think there's some fun stuff to talk about that dude. Yeah. From when we were just poking around coming up with a short story list. So that'll be fun. Layers. <laughs> like an onion. Like an onion. Like an onion. That's what we're doing next time. Where can the good people find us, Josh? Uh, they can find us on Facebook. Uh, we're facebook.com slash the Chromecast. We're also on Twitter at the Chromecast. You can email us, the Chromecast at gmail.com. We have a presence on the web. It's our, our uh, holy city, our fortress in the digital world thecromcast.blogspot.com, where we are kings and we rule with golden crowns upon our heads. You can call us, 859-429-CROM. And uh, I think that's the the gamut. We're also on Instagram. We're at the Chromcast, uh, where you need to start posting your art, sir. Oh, I, I will. Yeah, you should. So that's all the myriad ways in which folks can uh, can find us on the interweb. Good stuff, guys. All right, well... <laughs> We'll uh, we'll go ahead and, and we'll we'll leave the trail here. We'll come back to our to our road to the east, and we will get into another story next time around. Peace. Across mountain pass
<laughs> this comment somebody put under it the year is 2035 Marie Kondo holds up the condemned man to the crowd. Does this man spark joy? The crowd jeers. No, he does not. And she nods silently and throws him into the pit. <laughs> what are you reading? Is this a Marie Kondo fanfic? Yes. You read? 